You're listening to Sermon Audio from Redeemer Church, where we are disciples of Jesus in life together, making disciples. To check out our other media, or to find out more information about our church, visit RedeemerSGF.com. So John chapter 18, verses 28 through 40. So today is technically Palm Sunday, so this would be the beginning of the Passion Week. And and there's been, East, in Easter's past, we've... We've hit on Palm Sunday, on Palm Sunday. But the way that we're working through the Gospel of John is that when next Sunday actually hits, we want to be at the resurrection story, or yeah, the resurrection story here in the Gospel of John in chapter 20. So next Friday, at our Good Friday service, we're actually going to be reading and talking some about John chapter 19. So we're not going to skip anything in John. And then on that Sunday, Easter, we are going to hit the resurrection. So today's Palm Sunday, but we're not talking about Palm Sunday from today's passage. Okay, so a couple times ago, Matt Burke got up here and preached and talked about Black Panther all the time. And then every time Styko gets up here, he's always referencing movies or something. So I'm like, you know what? I got to step up my game. So um, if you've watched anything on Netflix, the show Stranger Things. How many of you have seen Stranger Things? Okay. I'm not going to ruin it for everybody else, but there was something intriguing about it. The settings in the 80s, which is pretty cool, focused on adolescent boys who like Dungeons and Dragons. That doesn't seem so cool. I'm not really familiar. Some of you are. No, to each his own. And as the show carries on, it slowly reveals really this mystery, this mysterious place called the Upside Down. Now, I'm not going to spoil it, but... This place is really just a parallel universe, but one of death and decay. I won't go beyond that, but imagine where you live, where you play, even this room, and now imagine it in a, an apocalyptic sort of scene and way that maybe you might find in a scary movie. That's kind of the upside down. Jesus comes onto the scene. And he completely turns upside down our understanding of the kingdom and how it requires something that's not so expected by us. But the scene is, I would say, kind of opposite of what we see in the show Stranger Things. In the show, the world, the main setting of the show is the sane world, the life-giving world. And the upside down is the place of death and decay. But for real life... For us who don't live in the movie Stranger Things, this world is what Jesus reveals as the world that is full of death and decay. And his kingdom is really the upside down. The very air that we breathe, the very lives that we live, the very relationships that we have, have all been touched by sin and death. We have been, before Christ, under the dominion of darkness. And Jesus comes as the light of the world, turning what has become accustomed to us as normal or comfortable or life, and he turns it upside down with his kingdom. And Jesus does more than just turn our lives upside down. He reveals to us there is a kingdom that is upside down to this world. If we could be transported to that upside down kingdom of Jesus, if you would, we would not see sin 
We would not see death. We would not see decay, demons, the works of the devil. It would be perfect. It would be perfect, holy glory. We wouldn't be able to stop gazing at Jesus. A life so vibrant, we could not believe we ever thought we had this sort of life and kingdom in this world. This is the wonderful writing of John's gospel. His gospel is not one, or is one that takes the reader from the death of this world to life found only in Jesus. The main theme here comes out of John chapter 20. John is not telling some new story either. John is telling the story of the gospel as it has been understood all along, all the way back into the Old Testament. And through John's gospel, we learn how the very life and work of Jesus is the very life and work of God throughout the entire Bible. If we can remember, as we've been working through the gospel of John, that Jesus comes, the word made flesh. He comes as the creator, as the word. Jesus comes and speaks his word and light and life are born. Just like we saw in Genesis, God spoke and there was life and there was light. Jesus comes as the one through whom God can raise up children of Abraham through him alone. Jesus comes as the greater Moses. Multiple times John mentions the prophet Moses and one who comes who's greater than him. And that Jesus would come and deliver us from a greater, in, a, in a greater exodus. The story of John, the gospel of John, is really just this kind of this parallel echoing of the Exodus narrative. And how Jesus comes and delivers us. And Jesus comes, we learned early on in the gospel of John, as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Just as we saw back in the book of Exodus in the establishment of the Passover. All along in the Old Testament... God has been teaching us of a kingdom that is not of this world. Everything from the law to the temple to the prophets, all of it was a copy of the upside down kingdom. All of it was just a small taste of what God was doing and providing and where we are going. God was kind to give us that small taste. He was kind to give us small glimpses of that glory, tasting and seeing and hearing the kingdom. But the fullness of it, we would not have until much later when Jesus would come. And while it's obvious the world hates Jesus, what is less obvious is that Jesus is not a victim to this world. And that's often what we recall in the the Easter story is how Jesus was beaten, he was slaughtered, and we often think of him in terms as a victim. But Jesus comes willingly, laying down his life as a sacrifice, because he knows what this world needs, and it is himself. So the kingdom, not of this world, has a king and a kingdom desperately needed for this world. The kingdom, not of this world, has a king and a kingdom desperately needed for this world. And so I want to show you three truths about what it means to be of a kingdom, not of this world. One, it would be 
is that we have a king who will pay for sin with his very life. Second, what does it mean to be of a kingdom not of this world? It means that we have a king who speaks and lives truth. What does it mean to be of a kingdom not of this world? Thirdly, that we have a king who lovingly sets prisoners free. So first, what does it mean to be of a kingdom not of this world? And that is we have a king who will pay for the sin, pay for sins with his very life. Verses 28 through 32. And I'll read again. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said, Take him yourselves and judge by him by your own law. The Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by which, what kind of death he was going to die. So I have an incriminating story about a child in our church, and I'll keep him nameless because I am only one witness, and you need two or three to bring any sort of charge. I was in my office on a Sunday morning working on my sermon, and no one else was in the office. Then a child walks in, and some of you may assume you know who it is. You're probably right. And this child came up to me, and this child said to me, Hey, do you know that uh, Stika, Pastor Brandon, uh, last week he was messing with everything on your desk? I was like, was he? He goes, yeah, he was messing with everything. He has no respect for you. (laughs) I quickly wrote that on a post-it note, and it's hanging right next to my desk. The Sanhedrin, the Jewish Supreme Court here, who is now Jesus under arrest, they have no respect for Jesus. They will do anything and everything they can. If you remember last week, they're bringing false accusations, false charges to Jesus just to get him moving forward in a, uh, in a criminal case so that he will be put to death. They honestly didn't have anything to bring to him. They were trying to extract that from him, pull that information from him, but they couldn't, and so they just had to continue to make things up. They have no respect. But remember this. Again, John shows us early on in his gospel writing that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is what John the Baptist said when he saw Jesus coming to be baptized. And it's no accident or coincidence that the gospel writer says those words. And it is Jesus who would ultimately, in John 3 and specifically 3.16, mentions that he will be the one, Jesus will be the one who dies on the cross for the sins of the world. He will be lifted up. And so we know early on in this gospel story that only Jesus could properly pay the price as the perfect lamb of God. Making it that whoever believes in his name will have eternal life. And so here we are on this scene 
Jesus is pure, without sin, without defilement. You notice that ironic language? The Jews wanted to enter into the headquarters, but they decided not to for fear of becoming defiled because they wanted to eat of the Passover. Talk about irony, right? Here they are breaking the law, essentially, to kill an innocent man, look pretty on the outside. That's the idea of whitewashed tomb. It's pretty on the outside, but it's dead on the inside because they want to put Jesus to death, and they'll try to look good doing it. And the Jews were playing religion. This is the biggest, I have no respect for you moment for them. They're willing to sin in order to get rid of somebody completely innocent. But here we are in the Passover feast. If we recall back to the book of Exodus and even the institution of the Passover... God was going to deliver his people from the hands of the Egyptians. And so he has Moses go before Pharaoh, perform these miracles. And by the 10th one, he tells Moses to tell Pharaoh, look, let my people go. And if not, I'm going to send a destroyer that's going to destroy the firstborn of every single home. Pharaoh refuses. And so Moses goes back to the people of Israel And he instructs them the way the Lord has instructed them to observe the Passover. Now, this is interesting. It is not the people of Israel who are in sin in this situation. It's the people of Egypt. But yet God instructs Israel to take a lamb and to sacrifice that lamb, to take its blood and to dip it, uh, to take a hyssop branch, to dip in the blood And to cover the doorposts of their homes, each of their homes with that blood. Because it would signify to the destroyer as the Lord would pass over the Israelites. That their homes, that these people who have been covered in the blood of this lamb will not be destroyed. Their firstborn will not be destroyed. The Israelites are just as responsible for this as the Egyptians they too need to be covered with the blood of the lamb. And the lamb stands as a substitute. The death of Jesus, that he would die, would ultimately be this cursed death. And Jesus would become that curse for us. And so this is the idea of the Passover, is that when, when the destroyer comes over and destroys the firstborn, there's that curse that comes upon those people. And in the case of the gospel of Jesus, Jesus being the firstborn, he takes it upon himself to die. But along the way, he becomes the perfect lamb of God who spills his blood, covering it over his people. The lamb was considered holy. Jesus is the king who will pay for the sins of his people with his own life. He's not just the Lamb of God. He is the greater Moses to lead his people to freedom. And imagine for a moment, Moses led Israel to obey God, partake partake of the Passover, so that their firstborns would not be lost. But here, Jesus lays down his life, gives of himself, So that the lost would be found. He comes as that firstborn. 
to give up his life as a Passover lamb so that we could be freed from the penalty of sin, but also free from the tyranny of sin. And that's the issue with Israel in this time is that they were held under the tyrant uh, Pharaoh and in him enslaving them and working them over and over. And so they would be freed even from his dominion. And so Jesus comes giving his body, giving his blood, permanently dabbing the doorposts and the lintels of our souls, forever being passed over, knowing that the Father in heaven gave up his firstborn so that, and destroyed him, if you will, so that we could live. And then in that process, Jesus was lifted up as the curse. It's what John alludes to. He kind of gives this parenthetical note in verse 32. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show what, by what kind of death he was going to die. By the Jews handing him over to Pilate, he would undergo a Roman death, which would be crucifixion. And this is important because when Jesus is raised up, like is told in John 3, he bears the curse. He takes on our punishment. Don't forget this wisdom. The world has no respect for you. But that's because the world is of a different kingdom, a different type of ethos, a different type of ethic, economy, and life. The world is in denial of its decay, of sin and death. And by God's grace, your eyes have been opened and you can see the decay that surrounds you. You have clear vision now. And by God's grace, you can see how King Jesus gave himself for you so that you would not have to pay the price for your own sin. Because we can now see these things. We have a tendency to put more focus on the kingdom of this world than upon the king and the kingdom not of this world. We get tightly focused on the curse instead of the one who bore the curse on the cross. Jesus giving his life as the Passover lamb gives us the ability, should I say, to be cross-eyed. So how does Jesus being the Passover lamb ultimately change who we are? Michael Morales says this in his book, The Echoes of Exodus. Through the Passover ritual then, Each Israelite household functioned in a priestly manner and Israel itself was being prepared to become a kingdom of priests in a royal nation. What Jesus will do as the Passover lamb is make us, that is his people, a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. We see this in first Peter. Being a kingdom means that we have a king and being priests means We are proactively living in the holiness of Jesus' perfect, substitutionary, atoning blood. As priests, we don't carry sacrifices to the altar to atone for our sins. Rather, we carry one another to the blood of the Lamb who already paid for our sins, where we find freedom from destruction and where we find true living. We become a people unlike anyone in the world, living a life unlike anyone in the world, with freedom unparalleled by this world. 
We are now a people no longer under the curse or dominion of sin or darkness or this world. We are now under the dominion of grace. And Jesus is our king. Some of you may already be ahead of me. But he's king of everything. Yes. And we'll make it clear in a moment. He's not saying he's not king in this world. He is. But his kingdom is not from this world. But we see this first in his sacrificial work as the Lamb of God. What king do you know and kingdom do you know that a king would lay down his life for his kingdom so that they might live? And this is who we are now permanently. We no longer have to offer sacrifices for sin because the sacrifice of Jesus is permanent. The Passover, this is the perfect timing of the Passover with Jesus coming to the cross because he is the Passover lamb. He is the one the Old Testament was pointing to. He is the one who frees us from enslavement to sin to freedom in him. That rhymed and I was not trying to. Apparently I rhymed last week too and I didn't realize it. Somebody thought I was creative. So I'll accept the credit. So what does it mean to be of a kingdom, not of this world? First, we have a king who will pay for the sins, pay for sins with his very life. And second, we have a king who speaks and lives truth. Verses 33 through 38. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord? Or did others say it to you about me? And Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? If we go back to the pre-trial, if you will, from last week, there was no discussion of him being king. But apparently, they have been working really hard to figure out a way to incriminate him, to charge him. If you remember last week, Annas, the priest, was trying to ask about Jesus' disciples and his doctrine. And the reason he would even ask about his disciples is, I think he's fishing for an uprising, a revolt, a revolution. And he didn't find one. And so, they present to Pilate, here's this king who says... He is going to be king. But we only have one king, and that is Caesar. So Pilate asks, he's he's looking around. Let's see if we have this political Messiah that you're painting to me. And so, are you the king? Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. Excuse me. He says, if it was, my servants would have been fighting for me. And it isn't that funny, because one of his servants was fighting for him back in the garden. But Jesus rebuked him. 
Hey, Peter, you don't need to resort to fanaticism. That's not the way. And then Peter was then later rebuked by the crowing of the rooster, right? Because he resorted to cowardice. Peter, the way is not the equal and opposite reaction to go from fanatic all the way to coward. There's a way of operating with integrity and nobility. Come the way of the cross. Jesus is saying to Pilate, there's no uprising here. If I was to be the political Messiah or king that the Sanhedrin is accusing me of or potentially even looking for, my people would have fought for me. And it's a little bit funny because Jesus had nobody except 12 disciples. But he would be calling upon the heavens to come down and fight for him in that situation. Kingdom, just so you know, is not at all a major theme in the book of John. It is in Luke's gospel. It's like 36 or 37 times mentioned. And then that's not even counting the book of Acts. Luke talks about the kingdom like crazy. John's gospel, three mentions. Three mentions. The main theme of John's gospel is, you got it, life. And every time that Jesus or John would mention the kingdom of God or heaven in his gospel, it is often interchangeably used for his understanding or fleshing out of life. John is writing to predominantly a Gentile audience. He's helping bring in an understanding of what Jesus has done. And as you can see here, not only the Jews, but even Gentiles like Pilate are wondering if Jesus is coming in as a political Messiah. John, I think, is very intentional in showing that Jesus has not come to be the political Messiah. And so he's speaking and writing in a way that is still perfectly true, still perfectly complements what Luke says about the kingdom and Jesus as king, and even Matthew as king, Matthew presenting Jesus as king, but does it in a way that does not lead them down the road of misunderstanding his purposes and mission. Jesus here is not denying the kingdom. He's not denying himself as king. He's playing smart. He's putting Pilate in this position where Pilate has to think and really interact, where basically Jesus goes from the one being accused and interrogated to being the interrogator, (laughs) which is quite funny, putting Pilate on trial. Jesus doesn't say the kingdom is not in this world. It is surely in this world, but that it is not of this world. It's not sourced from this world. This is where John really shows us the intentions of Christ, and that this kingdom is one of salvation. And don't misunderstand, that doesn't mean the kingdom doesn't invade every other area of life. It does. The kingdom of John, and I mentioned, is interchangeable with eternal life. If you were to jump to the two other references, because the third reference to kingdom in John is right here in chapter 18, but the two other references are in John chapter 3, Verses 3 and verse 5, when Jesus is talking to Nicodemus. Nicodemus being this Jewish man who's coming to Jesus at night. He's hiding. He's under the cover of darkness because he is a leader among the council. Or he's a Jewish leader. And Jesus says to Nicodemus, 
in John chapter 3. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. In verses 5 and 6, Jesus reiterates the teaching by saying, ultimately, that the kingdom is not of this world. It's not of the flesh. John 1, it's not even of the will of the man, but of God. The kingdom of God is not one-dimensional. It's multi-dimensional. And so Jesus taps into the purpose and the mission of this king, that is himself, coming into the world. And it will not be at all what Pilate is thinking. It is to bear witness to the truth. He says it right there in his own words. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Jesus tells us he is the way, he is the truth, and he is the life. Truth here is not just referring to some sort of intellectual um, true statement or fact. But it is something where you have uh, truth intermingling with life, intersecting with life, where it impacts not only what you're saying, but what you're doing and how you are, how you conduct yourself. And Jesus says, I come to bear witness to the truth. And everyone who is of the truth listens. That is, they obey. This is what we see in John chapter 10. My sheep hear my voice. And they listen. Pilate is is within uh, talking distance of Jesus. Can hear his voice. Hear the words that are coming out of his mouth. The Jews could hear him. Many could hear him. But they were not all listening. They were taking in. They could articulate what was being said. But really, they were not listening with their heart. Nor with any desire to obey Jesus. Especially as a king. And so these life passages, if you will. Life While kingdom is only three times in John's gospel, you have nearly 40 times where he talks about life. Life in Christ. And so Pilate is confronted with truth. Like the way that Jesus interacts with him. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Now Pilate is in this conversation and he has to face the reality of facing the truth, whatever truth is, or denying it. And so he does that. He deflects. He doesn't get into the deeper conversation because now if he does, he's putting himself in a position of really being interrogated by Jesus, but having to face the truth of his statements as well. And here's the truth that Pilate would have had to face if the conversation would have gone further. And here's the truth of Jesus. John three thirty six. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. This is the kingdom. There's life in his name. Life in Christ. This is the truth of the upside down kingdom. And if we were to kind of trace this unique uh, story of kingdom in John's gospel... We only have to go to a couple places. 
But here's what we see. We go back to Nicodemus in the third chapter, where he comes under the cover of night to Jesus, inquiring about him. And Nicodemus comes again later, I believe in chapter 7 or so. But he comes. Jesus tells him, you must be born again. Nicodemus is confused. How can I climb back into the womb after I've already been born? Jesus makes it very clear. That's not what we're talking about here. And we fast forward up to here. Pilate, talking about a kingdom, asking Jesus who he is. Jesus responding, I'm a king of a kingdom, not of this world, essentially. But then if we were to jump ahead into chapter 19, Nicodemus shows back up again. He shows back up in verses 38, 39. After Jesus dies, he comes out of the dark requesting for the body of Jesus, requesting his body. John makes it very clear, the one who would come in the cover of night has now come to the cross. Nicodemus was afraid He was afraid of the Jews. That's why he never came out in the light until the cross. Nicodemus was enslaved to the kingdom of this world. But when Jesus died, the upside down kingdom of God grabbed a hold of him. And Nicodemus wanted to go from hiding to being known and seen at the foot of the cross. Luke chapter 23. Luke, the one who loves to talk about the kingdom. Puts it this way. He shows us in verse 51 of chapter 3 or 23 the motivation for requesting the body of Jesus. It wasn't just Nicodemus who was at the foot requesting the body. There's a man named Joseph of Arimathea who was doing that as well. And Luke records this that they, he was looking for the kingdom of God. And they found it in the death of Christ. That is the upside-down reality of the kingdom of God. This isn't fair. Jesus is being wrongfully tried. It seems like it's just being brushed off. Pilate is just moving on. It's like a ping-pong ball. Jesus is just being bounced from one set of people to another. Nobody can seem to get this figured out. But understand, church, Jesus is not looking for human courts to acquit him. He's not looking for that. He's not even appealing to his own innocence here. He's allowing this. Because Jesus knows. He doesn't need to prove to this human court that he's innocent. How will Jesus prove that he's innocent? When he resurrects from the grave. Because in 1 Timothy, it tells us that the Spirit vindicates Jesus. The Spirit would not have raised Jesus from the dead if Jesus was a sinner. If he was wrong, if he was unholy, if he was not righteous. Jesus is not putting his hope in human courts and authorities, but upon the Father who is in heaven. He's entrusting himself to him, and he's done it his entire ministry. Jesus is the king who speaks and lives truth. He did not just spend his ministry telling everybody the truth, but he lived it, and he still lives it today. He's talking the talk and walking The walk. And you see that walking the walk as he's facing, literally facing Pilate, hours away from crucifixion and death. The kingdom we are a part of begins by faith in Jesus and operates under Christ's example and authority. 
In the Old Testament, Israel would center their entire lives around God. And I mean literally. If you pay attention to how the city, how Israel would position itself, it was centered around the tabernacle, centered around the temple. It was very strategic in that way. The way that God operated as the center of that nation's life. Our lives are to be centered around Christ. We are to seek not the things of this world, but to consider where our king resides in the heavenlies and to seek the things that are above. And this means we live according to our king, his kingdom, his ethics, his morals, his values. And we do it in the world. And so we see the connection. Our salvation, the atonement that Jesus brings, ushers us into the kingdom of God and to the feet of our king. And because Jesus is our king, we then live as priests, as people, a nation that represents the king and his kingdom. This is why we are called ambassadors, because we represent who our king is and his kingdom. Peter shows us later on in his letter in 1 Peter, shows us this kingdom uh, sort of living. 1 Peter 2, 18 through 25. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? If Jesus were standing before Pilate, a sinful man, and was beaten for it, what credit is there? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. This is the right way of following Peter. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but now have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Church, it is highly important we understand that we operate according to the ethics, the ethos, the values, the morals, commands of King Jesus and his kingdom and not of this world. Just like Peter, we are to neither be fanatics nor cowards. The kingdom of God that Jesus rules is one that is not against the world, but for the world. This means that we are to be for this world, not fanatically or as cowards, but as one who, ones who are entrusting ourselves to Christ alone. I appreciate these words about how the kingdom of God invades life. 
Jesus took the concept, kingdom of God, and transformed it from a narrow-minded, nationalistic hope to a universal spiritual order in which humankind could find the fulfillment of its ultimate desires for righteousness, justice, peace, happiness, freedom from sin and guilt, and a restored relationship to God in order in which God is king. Every age has to find its own appropriate forces expressing the ever-relevant message of Jesus in the kingdom of God. The forms may change, but his essence remains. In short, what we're seeing here is the kingdom of God invading his people and his people operating and living under this new ethic where we desire righteousness, justice, peace, freedom from sin. We celebrate our restoration and our relationship to God. We live in such a way where Jesus is king over all things. We submit ourselves to him. Every generation has battles and issues to deal with culturally, in families, so on and so forth. But regardless of the the situations of the time, the essence and the values of the kingdom are exactly the same. Church, Peter shows us what it looks like to live in the kingdom. We operate under his commands and principles to simply be faithful. What happened this last week in Nashville was a tragedy. The kingdom of this world bought into lies, or the the lady bought into the lies of the kingdom of this world, and the results were Deadly. The young lady who shot the school did exactly what this world would expect her to do. And of course, she would target a church, kids. Darkness hates light. Jesus tells us that. John's gospel tells us that. That should not surprise us. This is why Jesus, the light, came into the world to outshine the darkness. So what should our response be? The upside down kingdom of God says this. Let me first humanize this for a a moment. We should feel angry and frustrated at this. It should bother us. We shouldn't be okay with it. It should cause us to grieve and to mourn. But understand this. We don't grieve and mourn and become angry and frustrated like the world does. Because we are measuring it to the righteousness and the justice of God. The upside down kingdom says this. Pray for your enemies and those who persecute you. I bet many of us didn't even stop to think about that, but got really, really ticked off. We need to become the loudest voices in society, calling the church to pray, pray that darkness would be pushed back. Pray for those who hate Christ. Pray for those who are willing to go to do extreme measures to fight against 
the kingdom of God. And we must pray for people like that young lady. That they would come out of enslavement to sin. Come out of enslavement to darkness. Come out of enslavement to the prince of the power of the air. And come into freedom. Come into light. Come to the Lamb of God. Come into the great exodus who takes you from this terrible place into a land of freedom and hope and joy. Pray. And why do we pray? Because we don't have the power in us to do anything. We can be all sorts of activists. We can say all sorts of things. And we should. But understand, operating in our own power will do absolutely nothing. It must be His will. That's why Jesus teaches us how to pray. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Why? Because we have no control. We can't have control. We are sinful human beings. We have to trust God knows what he's doing. So we must pray to him. If we don't pray to him, we're most likely functionally believing that we are God and we just need to pray to ourselves and ourselves can fix the situation. The upside down kingdom loves their enemies. Jesus commands this. We like to talk about the commands of Jesus. This one, we don't talk so much about. That means we need to love people like that woman, that young lady. We need to be willing to not just be loud and aggressive on social media, in our group chats, in our emails, in our little huddles off to the side about those sinners out there in the LGBTQ plus community, go to them. Go to their house. Go where they work. Go where they meet. Actually get to know them and love them. They are sinners. Sinners, just like you and me without Christ. Sinners without hope in the world. Of course they're going to act in these outrageous, outlandish ways. Because they don't have Christ as their king. But we often resort to fear and just kind of huddle back and become really loud and angry and aggressive. Waving banners. Ah! But we forget that Jesus tells us that the gates of hell will not prevail. We must go. And radically love. They're expecting us to hate and despise. To spit. To throw stones. But that's because they're thinking that our kingdom is the kingdom of this world. No, no. Our kingdom is not of this world. We're just like Jesus. You can revile us. We'll love you all the way to the end. What does the upside down kingdom do? It entrusts themselves to the one who judges justly. Does it mean sit on your hands and do nothing? But understand, you can't control everything. You have no ability to change hearts. You can change policies. You can change your clothes. You can change your hair color. But you cannot change human hearts. Impossible. You must trust that God knows what he's doing.
And the last thing we do is we show this world the upside down goodness of the kingdom of God. The world needs to see that we actually have something to offer. When passerbys and foreigners and, and, uh, uh, would pass by Israel as they're encamped in the wilderness, there would be something about them that would pull them in, that would attract them in. This is a place of refuge. You're not going to get robbed here. They love their neighbors here. No matter who their neighbors are, they welcome them in. They have a God that they love and their God loves them. And their God's not requiring all this stuff for them, for him to love them. What is it about these people? And that should be the same thing the world continues to say. And church, this is no rebuke. I think we are standing out in a very unique way. In the last couple months, I've seen us love on each other incredibly. Sacrifice ourselves for one another. Evangelize the lost. There are people who are coming to faith. I, people are hugging each other. I know I keep saying it. We're going to keep hugging each other. Psycho's convinced he's going to start kissing with a holy kiss. So watch out. If you hate hugs already, I know who you are. Psycho's coming with kisses. But I'm just saying, there's a warmth. There's an invitation to the kingdom where people look upon us and they go, I want what they have. What is it? And it's because we don't follow the ways and the patterns of this world, but we follow the ways and the patterns of Christ and his kingdom. Let's show them these things. Does the truth you're speaking about match the way you're living? The truth that you're speaking about Jesus, does it match your very life? So what does it mean to be of a kingdom that not of this world? Last is that we have a king who lovingly sets prisoners free. We have a king who lovingly sets prisoners free. After he said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him, but you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do what? So, so do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? He just loves it. A little salt in the wound. You want me to release to you this king of the Jews? And they cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Barabbas was a robber. Pilate clearly understands the motivations of Jesus, that he is not coming as a political Messiah. If he thought that, he would not have come back to the Jews and said, I find no guilt in him. He understands there's no political revolt here in which Caesar needs to be Uh, concerned for his power and position. He says, I find no guilt. But then I would say he's taken back in astonishment when the Jews insist, insist that he be given away, that he be put to death. And so Pilate, wanting to wash his hands clean of this situation, well, then who do you want? You tell me. Because it's custom that I give one person away. So here's Barabbas. And we know from other gospel accounts, Barabbas was an insurrectionist. He was a murderer. He was a nationalist. He was put under arrest. And I don't even know if the Jews liked him very much. But so he says, hey, you want this murderer? You want this insurrectionist? You want this one who wants a political, you know, uh, revolt? Or do you want this guy, Jesus, who is not doing any of those things? And he puts it into the hands of the Jews. Give us Barabbas. 
give us that rebel rouser. Jesus does nothing to intervene. Pilate sets Barabbas free. But let's think for a moment about this. Jesus could have pled, pled his case. This is not justice. This is not right. I'm not like this guy Barabbas. I'm not an insurrectionist. I'm not trying to do what he's doing. But Jesus understands. He is not under the authority of Pilate in this situation. He is sort of, but he isn't. And not even Pilate is under the authority of Pilate. If you were to jump to chapter 19, verse 11, Pilate will say to Jesus, hey, you understand, I have the power, the authority to crucify you or set you free. And Jesus tells him, you, would ha- you have no authority except what has been given to you from above. And let's not forget the scene in the garden when the officers come for Jesus and he tells them, I am him. They fall down to their knees. All along, Jesus is operating under a different power and a different authority. He could have pled his case, Barabbas stay, and Jesus rise up to the throne. But instead, he allows for, the, for the, the hearing to continue, for Barabbas to be set free. And in the place of Barabbas, Jesus would take on the punishment for the crime. Barabbas is enslaved to the kingdom of this world and its ideologies. Barabbas hated Rome, hated government. He wanted his nation back. He fought for the kingdom he wanted, even taking lives along the way. Clutching his Bible and a sword, or his Torah and a sword. (laughs) And just like the Jews, the world would rather let the Barabbases of society run free than for the people of God to gain influence and favor. It is no surprise when the world quickly adopts anti-Christian ideologies. The world hates Jesus. The world would rather release its worst than have you and me speaking about biblical truth and living. This is why the young woman who shot the school in Nashville has essentially taken on a martyr status. The kingdom of God will not make the front page headlines of this situation, not across main media, because it promotes a kingdom that would actually set women like her free from the enslavements to the things of the world. The world and its powers hates that you and I might possibly set their people free. Coming at us with the same fierce, ferocious anger as Pharaoh himself. Church, do not forget also, you and I are Barabbas. We were enslaved to this world, to its ethics, its ideologies, to its gods. We may not have been murderers, but I'm sure we've hated someone in such a way that we murdered them in our heart. We may not have led an insurrection, but in our hearts, 
We conspire evil against those who have human authority over us. And we dream of and fantasize the day we can just take them over and take them out. We are guilty sinners, just like Barabbas. But God, being rich in mercy and love, allowed us to be set free. And in the, in, in the most incredible act of grace, Jesus took our place as a criminal and bore the penalty that was meant for us. This is the good news the world needs to hear. He did not look upon us with contempt, but really with pity and compassion, offering to us freedom Jesus has set us free at the cost of his life. You and I, church, are a part of a kingdom, not of this world. And we have a king and a kingdom this world desperately needs. Just like some of the stranger or some of the characters on Stranger Things, they never saw nor experienced the upside down. The world you and I live in has people who simply do not know about this upside-down kingdom and king. They need to know. They need to see his kingdom is for them if they would take him up by faith. We have a message to declare and a life to live before this decaying world, and it is this. We have a king who pays for the sins of sinners with his very own life, We have a king who speaks and lives truth. And we have a king who lovingly sets prisoners free. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for giving your one and only son for us. The perfect spotless lamb. The one who never sinned. Perfectly righteous. And yet... He bore the penalty on the cross.